Welcome to another podcast from the Rotary and Community Service Radio Show, which is now in its 12th year. Our show is heard every Friday between 6 and 8 p.m. on Community Radio Station 94.1 FM 3WBC and is also streamed live on the World Wide Web at www.3wbc.org.au. Here is a recorded interview first played on the 7th of December 2018 with Jill Baker, the recently retired former editor of the Sunday Herald Sun at the Herald and Weekly Times. This is 94.1 FM 3WBC, the voice of the Inner East, and you're listening to the Rotary and Community Service radio show with Ian Salick right through until 8 o'clock tonight. Now it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Jill Baker, the recently retired former editor of the Sunday Herald Sun at the Herald and Weekly Times. Jill's life as a journalist and editor of high circulation newspapers has been exciting and rewarding. However, at other times it has been very challenging, requiring physical and mental fortitude. Jill, when Herald Sun deputy editor, wrote a moving article that won multiple awards, including a Walkley and the Sir Keith Murdoch Award. Jill, a very warm welcome to 94.1 FM 3WBC. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's delightful to be talking to you. You've had such a wonderful career and I know just recently retired. So, Jill, what we'd like to do first of all in our interviews is find out a little bit about the person and, and then the career uh, that they've had. So let's, let's kick off by asking uh, where you were born. So I was born in Melbourne, so I am a Victorian, but to be honest, I'm a funny sort of Victorian because I have to admit that I've lived about half my life in Sydney, including most of my early life, and about half my life in Melbourne. So I'm one of those rare people that actually loves both cities and could be quite happy living in either city. Um, I'm slightly odd as a Victorian because I do barrack for the swans, but that is one of my few foibles in life. Um, And I think these days my view of the two cities would be, I think Melbourne is a gorgeous place to live and Sydney is a fantastic place to visit. But I'm happy to hear arguments about that. Well, it's an interesting uh, summary of the two cities. Of course, they always say that Melbourne is a little quieter and a little bit more social and a quiet scale where... Sydney side is perhaps because of the weather a little bit more outward uh, in terms of their activities or outgoing in terms of their activities but did you think that was the case when you moved? When I I first started working in Sydney as distinct from growing up in Sydney and I found one of the big differences is that in Melbourne when people first meet you they tend to ask you where you went to school. In Sydney often when people first meet you they tend to ask what suburb you live in, and occasionally if they're feeling quite bold, they ask you how much your house is worth, which Goodness I don't gracious. actually think anyone in Melbourne would ever I don't ask. think, I think that'd be <laughs> taken to be a very rude question. Well, I'm not going to ask you where you went to school unless you want to tell me, because my next uh, uh, question uh, is, uh, you went to school here, we'll, we'll give that as a given, unless you'd like to tell us, and then you, you went to university here. Well, I went to um, Strathcona Girls' School here, Um, and I guess what that school left me with, which is a fantastic thing, was um, I had 
one of those incredibly memorable teachers that that people talk about every now and then and she was my English teacher um, she gave me this great love of words and a love of books and a love of the arts and all of those sort of things and I think that Perhaps when people, you know, parents send their kids to school, you know, sometimes they're not quite sure what their child is going to get at the end of it. But for me, I've had that love of words, that love of books and things, and that's something that has stayed with me all my adult life. So I think that if you got nothing else from school to actually end up with that is a fantastic thing. It is wonderful to get a great teacher, and I suppose I'm really sort of dating uh, my life, but one of the most marvellous films that I saw as a young man was Goodbye Mr Chips, where the students really loved a teacher. And if you get a teacher like that in a school, your life can be so pleasant, can't it, to you, with your school career. So you went to Strathcona and then on to university, and that, I take it, was here. What uni did you go to? Well, it was actually a bit different to that. So I was probably one of those people who... Um, I think I decided that I was going to go to university and I was going to do law and I was, you know, sort of enrolled, you know, about to start at Melbourne University and whatever. And then one of my girlfriends at school said uh, she was doing an interview for a cadetship in journalism. I'd never heard of a cadetship in journalism. I knew no, I had no idea what that was about, um, but it sounded interesting. And I mentioned it to my dad and my dad said, I think that would be really good experience for you to do that. So anyway, I wrote a letter and said, can I get an interview? And I managed to get a couple of interviews. Um, if I was applying for a job in journalism now, I wouldn't get to first base because I'd done none of the things that, that people in journalism now ask people starting out to have done. Like I hadn't worked on the local newspaper, I'd never written an article, I'd never done any interviews, I'd never done any radio, like I, I had literally done nothing and I knew nothing about it. But I went to do this, um, this interview and they had a trick question in the interview and I had no idea how I knew the answer to this trick question, but I did. And it was the name of a particular politician in Victoria and I managed to get that right. And I think I was probably the only person in, in the entire cadetship interviews that got that right. And so incredibly surprisingly, I got offered the job. And I think my parents at that point thought, we've made a big mistake here. We really want her to go to university, but she's actually not going to do that. She's going to go and become a journalist. And so I started in journalism. I think my mum thought, this is probably not the sort of career we want for a young lady. Um, and it took them quite some time to, I think, to realise that A, I really loved it, B, it was a fantastic career, um, and that I was actually probably going to be reasonably good at it. So is there a prerequisite today, Jill, that you go to university and do some course? Well, there are, there are obviously lots of journalism courses now. So I think when I was starting out, there was only, I think there was only one in Victoria, whereas now most of the major universities have um, journalism courses. Um, but when I started out, a lot of the journalists, they took straight from all the, you know, the people that were starting out as journalists, they took straight from school. So you didn't actually have to have a university degree, whereas now, 
it would be unusual for someone to actually get a job in journalism without having a university degree. Now, if you want to know whether I think having a university degree makes you a better journalist, not sure. I think being a good, a good journalist is actually more about how you think, how you relate to people, how you talk to people, how you find things out, what your level of curiosity is. Well, you obviously surmounted all of that because of your obvious talent. I mean, were you writing essays at school? Was there a news board? Or, you know, you said you were, you'd enjoyed English at school. Were you doing anything at school that uh, gave you this sense of creativity? Absolutely nothing at all. And actually worse than that, I was probably the shyest um, school kid ever. And if you look at some of my reports from school, they'll say things like, Jill clearly knows a lot about this subject. Why doesn't she ever say anything in class? And so I was probably, I would say probably the shyest person ever to get um, a job as a, a journalist. But hiding your talent until this great interview with the trick question. <laughs> did, you, did you follow politics? Was that, was that something that you just inherently knew about or is I it think, just something you... I think it was a total fluke. It was probably just something that I'd read in the last couple of days and the name just popped out and I wasn't even sure that it was right but I thought I better say something otherwise I'm going to look like a complete idiot and so the name just sort of popped out and I think I think the person that was doing the interview probably had done, you know, 400 other interviews and everyone else had got it wrong. And so when he saw me sitting there and I actually came out with the name, I think he might have mistaken that was said, the she's spark. probably a genius. <laughs> well, that was the spark. That was the defining point. And it's very, very interesting. There's always a good question in an interview. And sometimes there's a standard question, isn't there? Like, what, what weaknesses do you think I have in... I always used to enjoy some people saying, I don't think I have any. That's their first weakness. Absolutely. That they can't admit they have any any faults in their life. But So it's an, it's an interesting... So there's always a special question. And every interviewer has a special question when you're interviewing for a job. So that one you obviously did very, very well at. Um, so you became a... Where was this that you became a cadet so journalist? So I, I got a job at the Melbourne Herald, which has since closed down. I don't think that had anything to do with me actually getting the job there, but anyway. I'm sure, sure. Um, so I got a job as a baby reporter and I was literally, I think I was 17 years old. I was incredibly shy. I The only work that I'd ever done before was I had a part-time job at Buckley and Nun selling, I think, men's underwear on the Friday night and, <laughs> and material and lace and things on the Saturday morning. Um, I don't think I could drive. I, I, really, I had almost nothing going for me as a journalist. And I was so shy that I, I would have just about fainted before walking up and asking someone a question. You often hear about uh, very young people in, newspaper, in the newspaper world. Uh, and you always hear about the, you know, the proverbial copy boy running around. Did you do some of that... Uh, that sort of basic stuff. Were you were you running copy to E.W. Tipping or somebody, one of the well-known journalists? You did all that basic sort of stuff. So I think one of the jobs that, that I had to do, and I have to apologise in advance because I would have made a million mistakes doing this. So you had to go and cover country race meetings. So you had to drive to wherever the race meeting was. And because I didn't have a license, I, someone else had to drive me there. And then you had to basically stand in the bookmaking part 
and basically write down the odds of all the horses and then you had to file them and then you had to, once the race was um, over, then you had to file the order of the, you know, that all the horses finished in. And to be honest, I don't think I was very good at that. I suspect that half the odds were wrong. I, th I think the horses were often not in the right order. Um, and it took me quite a while to realise that even those, the, the reason why you are given those basic things to do is to learn how to be accurate. Yes. And how to make sure that you don't actually file anything that says this horse came second or third or fourth or whatever until you're absolutely sure that that's what happened. Um, so I think there are a lot of those sort of jobs that, that you get to do. So checking TV programs, checking, you know, clues for crosswords and, you know, puzzles and all those um, very basic things, you know, but important bits of information that newspapers publish. Checking copy. That, that need to be right. Yes, um, checking copy. And I think, you know, I, I remember the first actual interview that I ever did that I went to. So I went with a photographer and um, it was a department store in Richmond. I can't remember the name of it, but it was closing down. So it was the last day of operation and we got sent there to take a photo and to do a little short story uh, for the paper. Now, I had, I didn't actually sort of realise that I was actually the journalist and I was going to have to ask questions in this interview. So when we walked up, went inside, we met the manager, who was standing there and I think the photographer said something like, oh, Jill will want to ask you a few questions. And my mind just went completely blank and I could not think of a single thing that I wanted to ask this man. So I just said nothing and just went red. And the photographer, you know, bless his socks, you know, started asking questions and he then proceeded to conduct the interview. He took the photographs on the way back when we were driving in the car. He told me how the story needed to be written. Um, and I think, you know, without him, I probably would have been fired on the spot because I was completely hopeless. And anyway, when it was published, I think it was three paragraphs in the paper. In, so what, it was slightly bigger than a brief, but not much bigger than a brief. But it was essentially written by the photographer um, based on all the questions he'd yeah. asked and none, no questions that I'd asked. And I'm sure the poor man who was the um, manager of the store to this day thinks... I'm a complete idiot. I, I, I doubt that, Jill, because you <laughs> you flourished, absolutely flourished. It's uh, most interesting to hear this, that uh, you started that way, uh, that you had to go to country race meetings because my impression was always, you know, the Jimmy Olsen, you know, in the Superman series that, you know, you went and did all the menial jobs, but you did the court rounds and that was... The, you know, that was pretty suburban, well, did, wasn't it? You did do that as well. So after the country race meetings, then you sort of got to do a little bit of police rounds reporting, a bit of court reporting. Um, they couldn't actually let you loose on courts until they were absolutely sure that you were going to get things right yes. and not get things really badly wrong. Um, and so, you know, you'd start off doing very minor court cases. So a magistrate's court, you know, lots of drink driving cases. Drunk and, and disorderly. Yes, and all that sort of all thing. The, all the mini stuff. And then yeah. as you got, you know, slightly better, then you might 
get a slightly more serious court case and then you might actually you know cover a bit of police rounds reporting and then maybe some parliamentary reporting and then maybe some royal commissions and it's just a very slow movement up the, right. the sort of magistrates county court and did you get to the supreme court eventually? i did i did quite a bit of court reporting i did quite a lot of royal commission reporting um, and i did quite a bit of parliamentary reporting both in state parliament here and in um, and in Canberra, and and in those days it was probably, I mean there were women doing that sort of reporting, but um, there were probably fewer women than there are now. Um, now in a lot of newsrooms there would be more than fifty percent women. Probably in a lot of cases there'd probably be sixty or a little bit higher. Uh, percent women I think when I started out that percentage would have been really significantly lower than that um, and and in some areas it was unusual to have a woman doing that sort of reporting for example police rounds um, so covering you know accidents and crimes of various sorts and whatever um, it was unusual I think I was the first woman who ever did the night shift on police rounds and the night shift on police rounds involved starting at either 2, 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning and going to whatever had happened overnight. Did you have to independently drive there or were you in a police no, I had, vehicle? I had my, no, I had my licence by then so I was independently driving. So you had to drive out at night to these horrific accident scenes? Yeah, often with a photographer. Um, and, and usually, you know, whatever had happened had happened by the time I got there. So if it was a, you know, a car accident or, a, you know, a crime of a some fatality. sort. Yeah, the, you know, the police and the ambulance and everyone were already there. So it wasn't as if you were being sent somewhere where, where there was just, you know, danger everywhere. This was a, you know, a, a terrible thing that had actually already occurred by the time you got there. But you had to be... You know, you had to get good at, at uh, speaking to policemen um, and finding out what had actually gone on and realising when they, you know, they or whoever was there didn't want to tell you, you know, exactly what had happened or not. And then you, you also had to get very good at filing for deadlines. So finding a phone box, because in that stage there, there weren't mobile phones, you had to find a phone box, have a coin, ring up and file your copy over the phone spelling out any unusual words to make sure that, that well, it was all spelled correctly. That's better to do, because I'm sure a lot of journalists are doing it by voice today yes. through Siri and some of the spelling mistakes is shocking. Are, just, uh, are just appalling. And hilarious. Uh, they're hilarious but it's the wrong word uh, and it sounds like but it's not the right word and I'm sure it's that voice Siri isn't it the voice uh, technology where they're, they're reading their reading their copy down a line. Um, Jill, what about the first major article that you had published? I know you've been doing a lot of routine stuff at this stage of your career, at the journalistic stage that you were at, but what do you believe was the major first story that you wrote that really had some gravitas about it? I think there were probably some political, I can't remember an individual one, but there were probably some political ones um, I think there were some, you know, crime ones that probably people looked at and thought, oh, maybe she's going to be okay. You know, she's got a bit going for what her. What was the what was the what was the years involved here? 
in terms of it was state state parliament here or was it in Sydney? Yeah, so no, it was state parliament in Victoria. So it was sort of partly Jeff Kennett sort of. Now time. that would have been extremely interesting. Um, well, I remember I wrote a particular story about Jeff Kennett that um, he when I mean, the story was right, he wasn't that keen on it at the time. And I remember he went on radio breakfast radio in the morning and basically said, you know, she's just dreadful and, you know, I think she should be sacked. And I remember my mum was listening to the radio and just about dropped her cup of tea and rang me up and said, you know, how could he, you know, say that about you? And I said, mum, it's just, you know, it's just part of the game. It's nothing to worry, worry about. Well, I suppose Mary Delahunty might have been pleased that the, that the focus was off her at that time and that you were at the receiving well, end of I his think one of angst. The, one of the things with journalism is that you have to, you learn that some of the things you write, people don't like and they, you know, don't like in a pretty serious way and, and people at times can be very angry about, you know, something that is in the paper. Um, so you have to, I guess you've got to get good at understanding that A, people might be angry about something that, that you've written, even if it is right. Um, and you have to understand that you're there for the reader. You're not actually there for the um, for the person that um, you know that you're writing about. This is uh, fascinating stuff. Um, before we have a break, I might just ask uh, a question. Uh, you finished your career at uh, Rupert Murdoch's Herald and Weekly Times, but you did work for some other media proprietors along the way, didn't you? And uh, you received awards for doing so. So I've been very lucky to work. So I've worked in newspapers, um, I've worked in magazines, um, and I've worked in book publishing. So I guess all of that love of words and books and English and everything that, that I sort of grew up with and, and got from school, I managed to sort of parlay into a wider career across all things to do with words but things in different sort of fields so i've worked for a number of newspapers both i guess high circulation ones and and lower circulation ones as well um, i've worked in in magazines so everything from magazines like you know gourmet traveler to the bulletin to bell the and bulletin, whatever right, right. Um, and if you look at a magazine like gourmet traveler I mean, what's not to love about a job like that? You know, just gorgeous food. Gorgeous. Did you? You had to go and test things, did you? And no, I didn't do that. Unfortunately, things? I didn't do that. So I was the publisher of Gourmet Traveller along with some other um, magazines, and um, um, so you know, I I wasn't actually eating, or fortunately, probably I wasn't eating or testing or whatever, but I was very much responsible for. I guess the the quality in the production of the magazine. And Jill, what about uh, daily press? What were you? Did you have any role at the Age at that stage as well of your career, or was that after? So I was deputy editor of the Age for quite a while. Worked at the Age for a long time over the years, doing lots of things. Starting off as a reporter, and the Age was the, I guess the newspaper where I moved from reporting to editing and at that point editing was really 
quite an unusual thing for a woman to do. I remember when I was made chief of staff at the age, and I remember I was there one morning and and someone rang up and I obviously said to my PA, can I speak to the chief of staff please? And she said, sure, I'll put you through. She switched this person through. I answered the phone and I heard this voice say, no, 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 I don't want to speak to you. I want to speak to the chief of staff. And I said, this is the chief of staff. And there was just... The glass ceiling. Someone who just wouldn't believe that that was the chief of staff. I wasn't quite sure what to do. So in the end, I just said, look, um, the best thing that can happen with this is that uh, we hang up the phone, you then ring back the switchboard and ask the person that answers the switchboard, who is the chief of staff? Can you give me the name of the chief of staff of the age? And they will give you my name. How incredibly polite. Uh, uh, you know... Honestly, Jill. I, I uh, thought it was hilarious because well, I thought the funniest thing was going to be that when they actually rang back, which they did. You would say hello once again. I would say hello once again and we would start again. <laughs> and I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And I think I probably laughed for about three weeks after that. because Well, that's very hilarious. kind of you because I think a lot of women today would be incensed. The, well, the, the, about that. It wouldn't happen It wouldn't happen, today. would it? I mean, we're, we're supposedly more enlightened today. But I, I sort of had no idea that uh, the newspaper world was so gender biased. I mean, it wasn't just, I, I never thought it was just all about women being in the, in the fashion areas of the newspapers and writing the social columns. Well, I, think uh, I never conceived that that was you know, part of what it was about. Well, now people would take no notice of it because these days women do all of those jobs, um, but you know, a few, quite a few years ago, doing those jobs was somewhat unusual. And, and so I think it's probably not surprising that occasionally you got a call like that. I remember I was covering state politics at one point and I wore what in those days was called a sundress, which these days is just basically a dress that instead of having sleeves just has straps across yes. your shoulder. And that dress was deemed to be not suitable for someone to wear into Parliament. Um, into the press gallery. Into the press gallery, unless you had a cardigan. Well, I hadn't bought a cardigan with me, so I had to quickly scuttle off back home and go and get a cardigan and then come back. So, again, I think those sort of things, you know, probably wouldn't happen these days. But, you know, this was a few years ago and those sort of things did. BWBC, the voice of the Inner East. And this is the Rotary Radio Show with Ian Salick right through until 8 o'clock tonight. We're talking to Jill Baker, the recently retired former editor of the Sunday Herald Sun at the Herald and Weekly Times. Jill, we've been fascinated to hear about your very distinguished career in journalism. But if you were to look back now, what would you say was the most enjoyable component of that career? I think editing a newspaper is the most incredible gift that you can give a journalist. So, and I guess what's incredible about it is that you get to decide what stories the paper covers, you get to decide what goes on page one, you get to decide what the heading is on page one, what the picture is, um, you get to decide 
whether a story needs to be very long or very short. Um, you get to decide who writes that story, which photographer takes the pictures to go with that story. So it's the most, um, I guess it's the most challenging job. It's the job that keeps you awake at night, you know, at times makes you quite uh, white knuckled, probably puts your blood pressure up, but it's an enormous sense of satisfaction if you actually get up in the morning, the day that the paper is published, and you sit there with a cup of coffee and look at the paper and think, I think I generally got this right. This was the right newspaper for this town on this day. And it actually has, you know, a or more than one pieces of great journalism in it. Jill, did you ever have to censor some of the things written by the journalists? Are they are they fairly precious? Some of the the uh, the journalists in terms of what they put forward uh, in, to the editor, and then the editor has to say, no, I'm sorry, that can't go to print. Uh, did you have instances where there were some some conflicts? Uh, I don't mean serious conflicts, but I mean conflicts in terms of editorial uh, control. Well, I think um, you want your journalists to be passionate. You want them to be um, fired up about the stories that they're doing, how they're covering things. You want them to go the extra mile in terms of the way that they're covering the story. And, and if they don't have that passion, they're probably not as good journalists as you would want them to be. So there's, you know, it's a creative process. So there's always going to be that, um, you know, I guess that sort of, I guess, push and shove to do with editing a story. So, for example, if someone files a story and I might think that we get to a certain point in the story and the way that the next paragraph has been written to me is saying to the repeat, the reader, stop reading here. You've read everything you need here. You don't need to read on. So I might just go back and say, look, I think if you actually rewrote that so it was more about this fact rather than that fact or it was just written in a slightly different way that that would make the story flow better and it would make the structure of the story better and it would encourage readers to keep reading right to the end. So you need to have those sort of discussions on all sorts of levels, you know, on a, you know, the style that the story's written in, the length of the story, the, uh, I guess, the what's, what's in the first paragraph of the story versus paragraph 15 or whatever. So all of those sort of discussions you have on a sort of a daily, weekly basis. Obviously, that's the creative requirement that you have. What about the legal constriction uh, was that a, a factor that had to come to play more and more as legislation affected what could be written and what could be divulged or well, not divulged? I think newspapers have always been very careful. They have um, teams of, of lawyers who are on call 24 hours a day basically to look at stories prior to publication to make sure that that the newspaper gets everything right and doesn't fall into any, you know, sort of legal difficulties. So was, that, was that your decision to do forward it to a legal uh, 
person at the newspaper? Yeah, so often it, it would be my decision to get something legal, but there are certain sorts of stories that a newspaper will legal as a matter of course. For example, and, and some people find this funny, but um, so often restaurant reviews are legaled prior to publication as a matter of course, just to make sure that you get everything right and that the opinions expressed in the, the, in the review are honest opinions about what the food was like or what the service was like or whatever. Um, so there's a number of categories of stories, like court stories and restaurant reviews and a number of others that would really, as a matter of course, just get sent to lawyers uh, prior to publication. And obviously, those sort of investigative stories that newspapers often spend a long time on, um, where you are uncovering something that hasn't been said before, those sort of stories spend a long time often with the legal teams prior to publication to make sure that everything about them is Rinsed. correct and mm. we can prove and if it ends up going to court that you know the newspaper is likely to win. I suppose uh, the idea that journalists never um, cite their sources can be a difficulty when you're trying to get to the absolute truth. Well it is but I think you know you have to you know, at times say to a journalist, well, I know your source has told you that, but we all, we need more than one source on that piece of information um, we need. So you need to go back and find a way to find someone else who will Validate confirm it. that mm. piece mm. of information before we publish. Very interesting, Jill. Um, I'd like to just ask you now, because we didn't cover this earlier, who were some of the real personalities that you met in the print media and for that matter other media along the way? You must have met some fantastic people and some characters. So I think you meet clearly lots of famous people. So you meet, you know, prime ministers, you meet business leaders, you meet film stars, actors, sports people, all sorts of people. Um, and in a funny sort of way, they're not the people that really stay with me after a long time. Um, if I can tell you about a couple of the people that have really stayed with me. So one of the stories that I covered as a reporter when I worked at The Age was uh, some of those terrible um, bushfires. And um, in covering that, I mean, it, you know, it's obviously an incredibly traumatic thing to live through. It's also traumatic for the reporters who are covering um, those things. Um, but I remember after probably, you know, four or five days of covering those bushfires, and I remember going to a street where basically every house in the street had been burnt to the ground and there were people there um, with just the chimney still standing and everything else was gone. And I remember driving up this street and there was this little girl who was um, sort of on the edge of the road with her head sticking in a drain pipe that went under the road. And she clearly was from the house that was just, just you know, not far away that had been burnt to the ground. 
and she was trying to find her kitten, um, which was meowing in the drain pipe and hadn't come out. And it's one of those things that sticks with me with you because you know, this is basically a girl who's lost her whole you know, world. Um, but the one thing that she thinks that she can get back possibly is this kitten. Mm, and I mm. decided on that day that the most important thing that I could do at that point was to try and help her get the kitten out of the, the drain pipe, which we eventually did. So it's, I guess it's those sort of things. It's, it's the people who live through incredible adversity um, and they manage to come out the other side and do something incredible. I think a, a, a great example of that recently is Neil Danaher and his campaign to... Very emotional stuff, isn't it? To raise money yes. for MND research. Um, now, one of our reporters at the Herald Sun, Ruth Lampert, did um, um, a fantastic piece of journalism where she told Neil's story of being diagnosed with that disease and then his decision to start a campaign to raise money to try and find a cure. And I think that that decision was an incredibly selfless decision because the reality is that, that the cure, even when we get it, is not going to be in time for Neil, but it's going to help other people who are diagnosed after, um, after him. Um, and I think that when you look at someone like that and, and you can see this incredibly selfless act to, to use what time he has... To contribute to society. And to try and do something to put MND centre stage. You know, it, MND is probably a disease that for a long time probably not that much money was raised or spent on trying to find a cure. Um, I think Neil has single-handedly, you know, with help from, from an amazing team um, as well, has changed that. Given real focus, hasn't he, too? And so I look at, look at someone like that and I say they're, they are the sort of people that really matter. They're the very emotive stories that you have obviously observed. What are some of the other stories that have really galvanise the community into action or heated debate? Well, I guess when I started out in journalism, natural disasters and those sort of things were what was often sort of covered. And and I guess in the ensuing years, the focus has, has really moved very much to a new form of... of um, I guess coverage which is terrorism and if you look at for example our correspondents that are in Europe and the UK I mean a lot of their time now is spent covering terrorist incidents um, and that wouldn't have been the case sort of 15 years ago or 20 years ago um, but you know a, if you were the London correspondent for any of the papers now, a, a lot of your time would now be spent simply going from one terrorist incident 
to another. And in Paris too. I mean, Absolutely. France, yeah. Nice, I mean, all, Paris, Nice. All over yeah. the place. I mean, they, they, you know, and I think that that is a big change in the, clearly in the world that we live in and the way, um, I guess, we live our lives. That's and report on life yeah. as such. Uh, just terrible. And, I, and you were obviously an editor when Jill Maher was murdered. Absolutely. Um, and that was a, I guess, a story that totally galvanised Melbourne in terms of, uh, I guess, the way, uh, the way the community responded, the way the community said, this has happened, but we're not going to let it change the way we live. The march. We don't, mm. we don't believe our, our city and our state is that sort of place. And we're not going to lose that or lose the, I guess, the, the sort of safe nature or generally safe nature of Melbourne um, in future. And I think those, those sort of things are incredibly, uh, they're, they're very natural and when they happen, they're incredibly moving. And newspapers need to make sure that they cover those things um, in a way that resonates with the community. Sensitively, obviously, mm. which I, I believe really did happen. In fact, all the media did that. Uh, I think the ABC did it very, very well because, in fact, she was one of their Absolutely. employees and I thought they were really sensitive and were very emotionally tied up in the reporting of that, obviously. Welcome back. This is 94.1 FM, 3WBC, the voice of the Inner East. And you're on the Rotary Radio Show with Ian Salek. We're here with you until 8 o'clock tonight and very happily talking to Jill Baker, the recently retired former editor of the Sunday Herald Sun at the Herald and Weekly Times. Before the break, Jill, you were telling us about uh, your very successful career in journalism and some of the punny sides of it and some of the more serious sides of it uh, that you experienced. And you've told us that you've enjoyed your career very much. However, life uh, for you has not always been that easy. And during your career, uh, I know that you've faced some very heavy challenges along the way. So I had this um, amazing life and um, fantastic marriage and, and wonderful jobs and everything was great. And then in 2010, unexpectedly, my husband um, died. And a few weeks later, I was diagnosed um, with breast cancer. And I think to have one of those things happen to you is sort of life altering. To have two of those things happen to you in a very short space of time is a really, really hard thing to, uh, to sort of cope with. So I guess um, I had to decide with the cancer whether I was prepared to be treated and if so what sort of treatment that I would want and that sounds like when I say that now it actually sounds sort of silly because why would anyone decide they weren't going to be treated for for cancer but when your husband has just died it is sort of a bit like the colors sort of gone out of each day so you tend to take the attitude, well, why would I 
uh, go through anything like that? Is it is it worthwhile being treated or not? So I think in terms of my doctors, I was probably their least favorite patient for quite a while. Um, I eventually decided that I would get treated, but it was just really sort of one day at a time. So I would have a surgery and then we'd see what happened and, and then the surgery became, well, you're gonna need chemotherapy and then the chemotherapy became, you're gonna need radiation. And people talk about people who have cancer being brave. And I think a lot of people who have cancer and go through the treatment are brave. I totally wasn't one of those people. So I was simply a person who sat there and said, right, what do I have to do today? I'm not gonna to worry about tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. It's just what treatment do I have to have today? And then I would have that. And then I was gonna worry about what happened after that. Um, so I went through uh, a couple of lots of surgery. I had chemotherapy, um, I had radiation um, and a few people, a few of my friends said to me, Jill, I think you should write a story about this. And I thought they were crazy. Like I thought they were just lunatics. And I th sort of said to them, why would you ever want to write a story about anything like that? Anyway, one day after I finished the, I'd finished the chemotherapy and I think I was about to start the radiation, um, I sat down at my computer and I sat there for about 20 minutes and absolutely nothing happened. So no typing, no words coming out, nothing. And that for a journalist is a very unusual experience because normally you sit at a computer and you start writing and it all happens quite quickly. Um, and then I just sort of suddenly started, things started coming to my mind and I started writing the story and I think it took me about a day and I wrote I think about 8,000 words and it was just really a look at what had happened in the whole treatment um, and anyway I had no idea whether it was a complete load of rubbish, whether it was interesting, whether it was self-indulgent, like what it was. So I showed it to a couple of editor friends of mine whose, um, I guess, experience or whose expertise I value, um, and they said, no, it's good. Um, but they said, there's a problem with it, Jill. And I said, well, what's that? And they said, well, actually, two things happened to you. First of all, your husband died. Secondly, you were diagnosed with cancer. You've only written about the being diagnosed with cancer part of it. You haven't even really done anything more than mention in passing in about three words, the fact that your husband died and you actually need to do both. So where it had taken me, I think, a day to write the 8,000 words, it then took me about three months to manage to put into the original story about 10 sentences that related in some way to my husband. That was um, the very private part. That was the very and, private and, and, part. And that was an integral part because you were initially talking a moment ago about being ambivalent about taking on the treatment and then having that treatment day to day. And that was because of that prior event, obviously. So, yes. So anyway, so I managed to 
to put these extra few paragraphs in and I still wasn't sure whether it was any good or not. Um, and I think one of the really hard things in writing is to actually write about yourself because you tend to be, I think, more self-indulgent when you write about yourself and less objective. Um, and that, I think, often means that the things that you write about yourself often are not as perceptive and not as interesting and so on. So, but anyway, I showed it to quite a few more people and everyone seemed to think it was worthwhile. So. With great trepidation, I approached the Herald Sun and asked them if they would be interested in publishing it. And they uh, were uh, very, very keen on publishing it. Um, I decided that um, I needed to be honest about it. And if you're going to do a story about being treated for breast cancer, one of the things that obviously happens when you're being treated for breast cancer is that you lose your hair. So I decided that I, if I was going to have that story in the paper that I needed to be prepared to pose for a picture showing my bald head, um, which I did. I've never actually looked at the pictures because I didn't actually want to see them. I just had them taken at work and then said, right, you just put them in the paper and but don't um, sort of show me. Um, and. Interestingly, I remember I was really nervous on the, on the day it was published. Um, so it was published in, in Herald Sun, obviously in Victoria, and then other news limited papers around the country. And I, I was super nervous and I remember I went to the market early in the morning and thought I'll just go and buy all my things and then I'll just come back and spend the rest of the day sort of inside. And I walked past the coffee shop at the market and there were three people reading the Herald Sun. Goodness. They were reading that story. Two of them were in tears and the other one was reaching into her pocket and getting her tissue out. And I thought, this is a disaster. And I sort of texted the editor of the paper and said, oh, I'm really worried. I think maybe we've made a terrible mistake. Um, and I think this is really going to... to worry people. Anyway, mm. I shouldn't have worried because the reaction from readers was extraordinary. So I got bags and bags of mail. I got literally letters um, from all around the world from people who'd um, read the story. And a lot of the letters said really not much more than sort of go girl, you know, just get better and, and you know, we're proud of you and so on. But there were some people, so in the story I mentioned that um, I was quite obsessed about the fact that I didn't have any eyelashes and I mentioned that I was looking forward to uh, having eyelashes by Christmas and I would use mascara to make them long and black and a, a few readers sent in little cards with things of mascara in them so I would have mascara to make yeah. my eyelashes long and black. <laughs> and I'd also, I'd also mentioned a that that my husband, if he was still alive, would have said, um, when I'd finished the chemotherapy, oh here, have a glass of what was his favorite wine. He actually would have said, have a bottle of his favorite wine. <laughs> um, and someone sent me a bottle of that wine with a, just a little note saying, we just love your story and we wanted you to know that, you know, were we really looking forward to hearing that your um, sort of 
opening this in five years time and I just thought like people are just so sweet and they you know I guess when they realize that that you know you've been very open and you've sort of opened your soul a bit to them they they are enormously responsive and to this day I'm incredibly grateful for that because it's not something you do often as a journalist and when you do to get that sort of reaction is incredibly rewarding. I think people should be incredibly grateful to you and I remember reading the article at the time not after the event after I got to know you I remember reading it at the time and was quite quite emotionally touched by it in fact not quite emotionally touched very emotionally affected by the article and I think it was great inspiration to people that you were so open about your life because other people are obviously experiencing the same things in life and that you could talk about it and in such a brave way I believe was just cathartic for so many people and that's obvious by the reaction that you got from the general public. Well I think there uh, my oncologist mentioned to me that that he thought there were some women who probably felt overwhelmed and didn't feel they could really talk openly to family and friends about the treatment and what it was like and, and all those sort of things and, and that maybe some of them might have felt comfortable just handing over the article and saying, well, it's actually like this. This is what I'm going through. And, and I think one of the great things about yes. that is that is that to know that other women who, you know, are going or have gone through that treatment will read something that you've written about it and say, actually, that's what it's like. Like she has actually, what she's written about is exactly what it's like and what you need to, to understand about having that sort of treatment. Um, so it was a um, yeah it was it was something that as a journalist you don't do often um, but to get that sort of response was a very special thing. It would have been very very positive I'm sure for so many people in the community. From your experience Jill what has really kept you so strong throughout all of this latest episode? Well I think I guess there are two things I think the first is you only have to do things one day at a time so if you're faced with something really um, difficult like a bad diagnosis that you just need to cope with what has to be coped with that day and then you can put other things off and deal with them tomorrow if that's going to make it easier. And the, and the other thing that I think is really important, and, and this sounds like a cliche, but I definitely don't mean it as a cliche, is that there's always someone who's a lot worse off than you are. Now, if I, I think probably most of your um, listeners won't have an oncologist, but for those who do have an oncologist who have been in their oncologist's waiting room, you see people in your oncologist's waiting room who have far greater problems than your problems and it's a great leveler when you realize that those people are positive they're getting on with things they're doing their best to stay well um, and i think that's something that when you see those people it's incredibly inspirational and you'd regard that as the most important thing 
to keep your mind positive, to look at other people and to do things one day at a time. Well, I think you, you know, if you try and take on too much, particularly when you're not well and you're sort of trying to live through the fog of chemotherapy and whatever, it can be pretty difficult. Um, so if you just say, right, today, I just have to do this. So I've got to do this treatment or I've got to, you know, whatever it is. And then all the rest of it, you can worry about that tomorrow. Um, but I think seeing some people who really are fighting much more difficult things than I've ever had to fight, you know, those people are incredible. And when you see those people and you realise how positive they are and how hard they fight, um, that is, that's an amazing experience. Well, Jill, I think you're amazing and quite incredible. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, but more than a pleasure, it's been a, an experience talking to you and a learning experience. You've had a very successful career and you have such a positive approach to life. You really are a role model for those going through life's very difficult journey. And hopefully hearing your story really does give inspiration to others and I'm sure it did as you expressed uh, when you were talking about that trip to the market. Jill, I wish you every happiness going forward and thank you for talking to us today on 94.1 FM. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This podcast was produced and presented by Ian Salick of Rotary District 9800 in Victoria, Australia. More podcasts can be found on iTunes by typing into your browser Rotary Radio Doing Good in Victoria or alternatively by going to the Rotary District 9800 website at www.rotarydistrict9800.org.au and clicking on Rotary Radio. Thank you.